Hi, I'm Diane Hullett, and you're listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. And today I've got a really fun guest, Dr. Matt Tyler. Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going? Matt and I kind of found each other on Instagram, and I think he's got a really interesting angle on the message he's trying to put out to all of us about what we can do better to take charge of our own health care. So Matt's work is called How to Train Your Doctor. And gosh, let just tell us a little bit about yourself, and then let's talk about why that why that phrase is part of your title. Sure, sure. So um, I've taken a bit of a winding path to get here, like many folks in the palliative and hospice space. I didn't intend to go there when I started. Uh, my, my background, truth be told, is in biomedical engineering. I had no intentions on going into medicine, um, but it was very much interested in how the body and the mind worked, mechanically speaking, and then found myself craving more human interaction. So it drifted towards medicine. Uh, I actually went to medical school specifically to do psychiatry because again, I found sort of like how the mind and, and brain work is very fascinating. Um, but then once I was in medical school, I realized I was fascinated how the entire body worked, uh, not just the mind and brain, but anatomy and physiology and all that stuff. Uh, so like any medical student who couldn't decide what to do, I went into internal medicine to push off the decision um, a little bit longer. Um, so I, I finished my internal medicine training and board certified internal medicine. Um, but very early on in internal medicine training in particular, I realized that by and large, we were being trained how to treat diseases first and people second at best. Um, and I was very much interested in, in treating people. And I got quickly bored, underwhelmed, whatever you want to call it with the model of here's what's wrong with you here's what you need to do doctor knows best type of model of medicine and i was very much interested in flipping that towards you know what can what can i as your doctor do for you um and it turned out people have all sorts of thoughts about that uh, we just typically don't ask them uh, and i found that when i really sat down to talk to people about what mattered to them what living meant to them and what they were worried about what they're hoping for all those things all of a sudden, the medical plan that we had in place didn't make as much sense as we thought it did. And like as a stroke of total luck, as the gears are turning about this like sort of realization, I got assigned an elective in palliative medicine as an intern. And as soon as I jumped into it, I was like, oh, I this, I, I need to do this. And so I became like the gunner for, for palliative medicine in my intern class uh, uh, from there forward and uh, went on to like I said, finished internal medicine residency, went on to do a hospice and palliative medicine fellowship where I uh, got board certified in that too. And since then, since 2016, I've been working uh, primarily in, in palliative medicine. Though my, my day-to-day, -day, I, I wear a lot of hats these days, but I, I run an inpatient palliative care team, meaning we get consults from folks who are hospitalized to work through plan of care, goals of care, symptom management, uh, the typical stuff a palliative doc does. Um, I do some work with our uh, hospice-affiliated uh, team as well. Um, I, uh, I run a clinic at our cancer treatment center and do palliative medicine there. Um, and uh, the medical director for our palliative system as well, so oversee operations for a couple other teams as well. So, so, so neat. I love, I love that the circuitous route kind of took you where you needed to go. And what, what was it about the palliative team that kind of jumped out at you that you were like, oh, this is more interesting? It was the conversations, really. It was um, kind of just a, a means to an end to have 
deep conversations with people. And, and that's where they were, they were happening in palliative medicine. That was where I was expected to sit down with people and talk about you know, what matters most to them. Whereas in the rest of my training, that was sort of like, yeah, I mean, if you have time, like go for it, but like we have other stuff to do. You have discharge summaries to write and orders to put in and uh, you try to fit in those conversations, but it was always sort of like, you're constantly rushing to do that and fitting it in amongst all these other things. Whereas in palliative medicine, like those big conversations were like the work that, that front and center. And I just, I wanted to be in the specialty where that was the work. And uh, that's how I just got pulled in so, so magnetically towards palliative medicine. It's so beautiful because this idea that, ah, uh, gosh, I mean, the medical system, what, where do we even begin, right? There's so much, there's so much good and so much power in it. And then there's so much awry at the same time. And it, I think it almost depends on what you're interacting with them as a, as a lay person, as like a patient, it almost depends what you're interacting with the medical system for, because if you're yeah. interacting for like six years ago, I massively broke my leg boy, was I happy to have, you know, hardcore surgeon and big time recovery and people who could manage that acute situation and patch my leg back together with a bunch of metal. But if you're interacting with the medical system at a more terminal, complicated, less black and white kind of area, it it can just go so uh, not quite the way you want it. And so I love this, how you've kind of flipped the conversation and said, how do we train our doctors for the conversation we want to have? Because I think so many of us think that our doctors, like they'll tell us when it's time to have a different conversation. You know, the the yeah. medical personnel will let us know. And uh, you're kind of thinking as well, they might not. So you might want to take charge yeah. of that yourself. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And I think this is not for like any any ill will by by the medical team or, or doctors in general. It's just I think we are we are trained to focus on disease and pathology. And when there's not a disease to fix or treat or a pathology to kind of intervene on, I think a lot of times we just feel helpless and we don't know, we don't know what to do. We kind of throw our hands up. And it tends to be in the space of serious illness, incurable illness, where there is a lot of good that we can do. There's even healing we can do. In, in those times, but it requires a different kind of training uh, and one that we don't typically get in medicine and often where we as people, as patients need to kind of step in and, and take the lead on, on what we need, which no, it, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, it, it shouldn't be that way, but you know, um, I think you either want to take charge or you, or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you like? Well, first tell us how you came up with this name, how to train your doctor. Because it's kind yeah, of a fun, uh, like, I don't know, it's almost it's almost a little edgy or something. It reminds me of, you mentioned before, like Matt and I were talking before we started recording about the old fabulous movie, How to Train Your Dragon, right? Yeah, and that's, and that's where the inspiration came from. I, I, I love that movie. And I think depending on how much you want to nerd out about How to Train Your Dragon in, in particular, I mean, the whole premise of this movie, for those who haven't seen it, is that it's like Viking era and there's the Vikings and there's the dragons and their and their enemies and they're constantly fighting one another. Um, and there's this kid and this dragon who come to be friends and they kind of lead the way to show people a different way to to coexist with one another. Uh, and I think that's very much what I'm going for with with, with how to train your dragon. The, the medical system, as we've already referenced, is like pits doctors against patients, and no one no one really wants to operate that way. Like doctors doctors want to help you, patients want help. 
Uh, but we have a system where that's next to impossible to do. It's, it's fragmented. We're, we're punished for spending more than like 30 seconds with patients. Uh, it's, it's impossible to do. So this is all about how do we work with a broken system and make it a little bit better to get people care that's more, more meaningful for them. And, um, and that's really what it comes down to. It's a different kind of training, right? It, it's, uh, it's, we're not really taught how to have these deep conversations, not, not, a, not in a real way. We get maybe like a afternoon webinar about how to break bad news and that's sort of the end of it. Um, and uh, we're certainly not taught to have like real like deep conversations about terminal illness, serious illness, you know, things that there's not a straightforward fix for. Um, I mean, that's where there, that's, there's a reason there's a whole fellowship for that because it's not something that you can really fit into a, a medical training. And yet we all die. Uh, like it's, it's, we're all going to get something at some point and we're all going to interface with the medical system probably at some point. So we kind of got to fill in those gaps where docs weren't really necessarily trained to lead you through that, even if you're going to be working with, with those docs. So my, my hope is to be you know, creating this resource where people can you know, get these little snippets or nuggets of wisdom to really take the first step. Yeah. What, like why two questions? I mean, why do you feel like it's helpful for people to feel more agency over their healthcare? Like as you, with your background in psychiatry and the human mind, like why does that matter to feel like we're in charge or have again, some agency? And, and then secondly, how, so how do you begin to do that? So two huge questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll totally hammer out everything in the next five minutes here. Yeah. Um, yeah we'll just put it all there. <laughs> um, so it's, like it, it's an interesting phrasing of that question, right? Like why it's important to, to feel in charge of our, of our healthcare, because I, I strongly believe we should all be in charge of our healthcare. Um, and, and we have to be, um, I, I don't, I don't know if you've talked to uh, Sammy Winemaker and Sin Xiao from Waiting Room Revolution, but they kind of talk about the seven keys to navigating a serious illness. And one of them is connecting the dots. Um, and again, healthcare system, it's a mess. It's very fragmented. And if you're not in charge of the coordination of, of care, no one, no one really will be um, because we have all these different healthcare systems, these different electronic medical records. They don't talk to each other very well. Um, every healthcare professional you interface with you know, takes charge of some piece of your healthcare, but not the whole thing. And I mean, not even your, your primary care doctor, if you get a serious illness like, like cancer or heart failure or dementia, you know, now you've got an oncologist or a cardiologist or a neurologist following along and like they own like some of it and the primary care doc owns some of it, but like who really owns all of it? It gets very, very blurry very quickly. Um, and so you really have to be the one that is connecting the dots, and taking the notes and leading the other docs through what's going on so they can be the most helpful to you. Um, so taking charge across providers is important. And it's also important to be in charge with, within an individual provider relationship um, because you you have to be on the same page with what you're doing and why you're doing it. And and the why is so important. And this is where we, we assume things, we presume things and we're just not on the same page. Uh, I don't know how many folks I've talked to being treated for cancer and they're thinking that they're doing all this for, for cure or at least for a chance of a cure. Whereas the oncologist felt that they were very clear that there was never a chance for cure. Uh, we were just trying to buy a little bit of good time and that was it. Um, things that just, things that we feel have been made explicit just aren't um, for all, for all sorts of different reasons, but this is why as, as the person going through all these things, you really got to take charge and make sure that you're 
and your doc are on the same page with what to expect, what a, what a success looks like for you as an individual versus what a success would look like from a medical point of view. Um, and that's a big piece of it. Um, but the phrasing, the phrasing you asked is why, why it's important to feel in charge. I think is a, it's a more existential thing, right? To be given uh, a, a serious illness like cancer, like heart failure, um, you're, you're robbed of many things, uh, both physically and existentially, right? You're robbed of a, a future that you thought you would have. You're, you're forced to grapple with pieces of your identity, things that you felt defined you that maybe that's called into question now. And you're like wondering, who am I with, with this illness? And you're trying to integrate the illness into your identity um, and not kind of lose out to just being a patient, right? Because everyone wants to be a person, not, not a patient. Um, so feeling in charge is, is very important. And certainly having a plan by being in charge, having a backup plan by being in charge is a big thing, a big deal for a lot of people. And for many, that's often enough uh, but when you're existentially challenged and kind of grappling for control over something, when the bigger picture is not totally in your control, um, that can require some deeper work, some real deep reflection uh, about who you are and what matters most to you. And I think having a plan in place kind of sets the groundwork to do that deeper work. Um, but that that feeling in charge is really kind of what we're, we're all going for because healthcare, no one really cares about their healthcare, right? They care about their health. Uh, and healthcare is sort of a tool uh, to do the things that you want to do. Um, it's 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 a means to an end, which is you know living on our own terms, living to our truest selves. And we want to be we want to be in charge of our lives and our destinies and our health. And healthcare just happens to be this annoying system that we deal with to try to achieve all those things. Yeah, I think that's really really well thought through. And there's something about like we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we feel like we have we want to have some choice and. And yet sometimes in the healthcare system, we're not sure how to, like what the first steps even are to do that. So we're just kind of yeah. going along. How do we begin to train our doctor? What are the conversations we can start to have? Yeah, uh, I, I think the biggest thing here is recognizing there's really not a system in place in any sort of a universal way in healthcare to, to have these conversations and to talk about what matters most. So if you are someone who wants your doctor to know what's important to you, you know, what a successful treatment looks like, you, you have to tell them, like you just, you have to. And that's really the big piece here is recognizing that your doctor isn't necessarily going to have a big picture conversation with you when you need it and in the way that you need it. Um, because again, that's just like, it's not a typical part of training, right? And, uh, and, I think, you know, I, I know I've ruffled some feathers from some docs who have left comments and saying, like, what are you talking about? Like, we're, we're trained for this. And I, I think this is like the, the, old, the old struggle of competence versus confidence. Um, and we're, we're trained very, very much so to be confident about everything that we do, regardless of if we're competent to do it. And we certainly get rigorously tested on diagnosis and treatment of diseases. But in terms of competency for conversations there's there's less of that there's a lot less of that to say okay like does your confidence for having this conversation match your competence for doing so um and so challenging that is not always met like super well um but 
but it, it's true. I mean, the numbers don't lie and there's plenty of data to back up. The patients are not having the conversations they want when they want to. It's not just like me, like, uh, like waving my finger at people. Like we're just, we're not meeting people uh, where, where they're at with, with what they need. Describe in your newsletter this past week, you had this great study that you brought up. Describe that study and what they found. Yeah. So, so this was in reference to a, a survey that Johnny Hartford Foundation just published this year. And so they asked uh, folks in the U.S. over the age of 50, if any healthcare professional had asked them in the past two years about what, what matters most to them. And over half of these folks said that no one had, no one had talked to them about that. Um, and you know, it's, it's, not, it's not really an isolated thing that the California Healthcare Foundation talked to folks over the age of 65 some years ago about end-of-life conversations, and they, and they asked these folks, you know, do you want to talk to your doctor about your end-of-life care and your preferences? And, and over 60% of these folks said they did, uh, whereas like 13 or so percent of these folks actually had that conversation. And, and I think to, to kind of play the other side, the other side of the coin here is why are docs not having those conversations? I think mean, certainly the, the training is a piece of this. Uh, the time is a piece of this, right? The system stacked against us. The system is not built to have deep conversations with folks. We have like, you have a 50 minute time slot and usually the doc's in the room for less than that. Um, and you know, going back to that, that kind of statistic about 60% of folks over 65 want to have these conversations. I mean, the flip side of that is like 30 some odd percent don't. And every doc I've talked to has a story about the time they tried to have a conversation and it blew up in their face. Uh, and so, Again, we're, they're trying very hard not to jeopardize a relationship and trying to do good where they can without freaking out people or scaring people. Um, and they don't, they don't know just by looking at you, like, are you a straight shooter or you know, what kind of information you want and when you want it? Um, and we're not, we're not really trained how to ask that or to suss that out either. So you know, if you are someone who wants everything up front, like you want the big picture, you want the, the prognosis and all that, like you just have to, you have to tell them, like, doc, like, give it to me, like, give it to me straight. Like, what's, what's going on? Like, what am I up against? Let them know what you need. Like doctors are juggling a lot and the patient is juggling a lot. They're not always on the yeah. same page for what the juggle is in that moment. And then like yeah. you said, time is just against. My guess is that the, yeah. the doctors and nurses who are really good at these conversations probably got it just through their personality and on the job experience. Like it isn't like they took, they took a particular training that really helped them. You know, they had a two hour webinar that was the perfect thing. It's just, yeah. they've got a knack for it. And they've had some good experiences with patients, which probably builds their competence and confidence for how to kind of say, we should, we should talk about some bigger things here. But I can see yeah. how the whole thing is kind of stacked uh, against both sides. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to have space for those conversations. You have to, you have to want to have the conversations with a healthcare provider and you have to have typically a couple, you know, wins under your belt where you had the conversation that went well to incentivize that. But, it, but beyond that too, like you got to have the, the training and the coaching and the, and the communication skills to, to back that up as well. Um, even even me as an intern realizing I wanted to have these conversations, I also recognized like I I wasn't equipped to have these conversations like with the skill set that I had and and why palliative care training was so important, why connecting with with Vital Talk and their communication skills training was so important to me because you gotta kind of kind of match the the will with with the real hard concrete communication skills training too. The nice part is once you 
kind of jump in there and start you know, having these conversations bit by bit. It, I mean, they don't have to take very long. Uh, a, a big picture conversation for many folks is just saying, hey, doc, like this treatment you're talking about, like what's the best case scenario here? Like what does a, what does a win look like? Or, hey, doc, like if we do this, like this is what I'm hoping to get out of this treatment. How realistic is that? And, you know, a very important, impactful conversation can take five minutes or less. Um, it's just to help you get your bearings and understand like what you're up against and to make sure that you're, you and your doc are kind of going for the same thing. Um, it doesn't have to be like dissecting like your identity and the meaning of life and living like every every single visit by any, by any means. How do you recommend that people begin this? Um, I think it depends first on you know what what's important to you and having a moment to yourself to think about what what is important to you like how do you see yourself as a person what are your values what are your priorities and that that can be a very big thing to ask people just like oh how do you what are your values um i i think a helpful exercise is to kind of think about the different domains of your life like career family relationships hobbies religion spirituality take like three or four of those and and put yourself like one year in the future and you you run into a friend at the airport and they say how's it going and you say it's going great and here's why and they kind of go through like each of those domains saying like like hobbies wise like why like why was this year so great for you and your hobbies or why was this year so great for you and your family and like in those answers will be clues that kind of pointing you towards what you value and what you prioritize may also help you plan your year and kind of set you back up on the right path too. Um, but I think thinking about those things and how your health and healthcare impacts those things. Um, again, this kind of goes back to my, I, I have a, what I call goals of care jumpstarter that starts to get the juices flowing on these conversations. Uh, but I think first it really depends on how much your health and healthcare impacts your life. Uh, Cause if you're just someone going to your doc once a year for a checkup and like, you don't really think about it beyond that. These conversations are a lot different than someone with with stage four cancer who is at the treatment center every week, getting their blood drawn, like arms bruised up and down, and just their whole life and schedule is built around treatment. Like that's a very different situation that requires very different conversations, uh, has different trade offs to care. Um, so you got to bring that context first, like how much your quality of life really impacts, or, or vice versa, how your healthcare impacts your quality of life is a good starting point. And then thinking about why it's impacting your quality of life will start to unpack what we would call a goals of care conversation. What is that? What's a goals of care conversation? What is that? Uh, yeah, it's kind of an obnoxious phrase, right? Because uh, goals of care really refers to whatever your goals for treatment are. Like, what are you hoping to accomplish with your medical care? Um, is it uh, walking again if you broke your leg? Um, is it getting to a wedding if you were living with stage four cancer and kind of eking through treatment to get to some big life event. Um, it's, it's a very, a very personal thing. Um, and typically, and really anyone getting healthcare ought to have goals of care, right? And some it's in some camp of like living longer or feeling better um, in, in the, in the broadest sense of that. Um, it's usually accomplishing one or two or ideally both of those things. Um, and everyone receiving healthcare has goals of care. It's tricky because in healthcare and amongst healthcare providers, it's a very loaded statement. And typically when someone invokes the need to have a goals of care conversation with a patient or their family, 
it's because things are going badly, at least from the medical provider's point of view. They're worried about the plan of care being aligned with the goals. And they're worried that whatever we're doing here isn't as helpful as someone thinks it is somewhere in the, in the sphere of the patient, whether that's the patient themselves, the person making decisions for them. Um, they're worried that what we're doing here is not working. Um, and that may or may not be true if we haven't bothered to stop and ask, what are you hoping to achieve here? Um, maybe it's a line, maybe it's not, but it's often where we pause and double check. Like, are we, are we going for the same things here? Like, what, we... what is, what is your hope here? Right. Like, are we aligned? And, yes. and what are some of the mistakes that we patient lay people make in those kinds of spaces and conversations? Like, is there a way that what what can we learn that makes us better at those goals of care conversations? I guess kind of what you said, like honesty with your values. Yeah, and it's tricky, right? Because these you don't know what you don't know if you're if you're a lay person or a non medical person. Um, I know you know folks on the other side often will grumble at me saying like, "Why should I be in charge of this? My doctor be doing this?" And like, yes, um, and uh, it's not always happening. And there's a power gradient there, right? Like you don't necessarily want to, uh, you don't want to like annoy people in charge of your healthcare. Like it's a, it's a vulnerable position to be a patient um, and you're pressed for time. Uh, there's not a lot of time there, but um, so any mis any mistake here, I say, I put in heavy air quotes because I, I really am not wagging fingers or wanting to put more on the shoulders of people dealing with serious things already. Uh, but things that are helpful um, to lead these conversations are, are not presuming anything. Like if you, have, if you have clear expectations for your treatment and what you hope to achieve with treatment, uh, say it out loud. And I get, I get so many eye rolls for this from patients and docs, like saying like, what have they told you? What are you hoping to achieve? And they're like, well, duh, like I want to live, man. I'm like, yeah, but like, what are they, like have they, how realistic do they tell you? How much time do we talk about? Um, do you want to know like what is, how much time would this treatment get you? Um, and what would living on this treatment look like in terms of side effects, where you would live? Like, would you need to move to a nursing home to have the help you need to continue on this treatment pathway? Um, I think that's really the main thing is when you're talking to your doc about what this treatment would look like, what the expectations are, really have them, encourage them to paint a picture for you. Like, what am I doing? What's my functionality like? Where am I living? What kind of help would I need? Uh, really just understanding what does my day-to-day -day look like on this pathway because um, they don't always paint it in those terms. They'll maybe give you some like progression-free survival statistics, but maybe not tell you like you're going to be like super worn out, need lots of help, may not be able to keep living at home. Uh, the things that people really care about uh, may not come up. So you have to be explicit about what a successful treatment looks like to you. I can think of a story of a, a friend who had a relative recently where a situation like that really unfolded with so much difficulty. And part of it was, I think, not quite having these conversations. So the, the gentleman yeah. uh, was found to have a very advanced stage of cancer and he ended up having surgery for that. And then that led to another surgery. And then, oh, it turned out his home was actually three flights up and he wasn't going to be able to go back home. But nobody had really talked about that ahead of time. And then the wife wasn't really capable of caretaking. And so the whole thing became this giant, uh, what do we call it, quagmire of, yeah. of incomplete conversations that led to a very complicated end of life that was sort of ultimately tragic. Although at the very, very end, he got into a hospice 
living situation. And so that was okay. But that was like the last five days after this complete mess of a couple of months for everybody involved. And it was, I think, uh, traumatic and complicated and expensive and all these things that I'm not sure would have been his first choice or his partner's first choice had they known where it was headed. But because nobody Mm -hmm. wanted to look at where it was really headed, they just sort of dove in with, yep, let's do that surgery. Oh, another one? Okay, let's do another one with no discussion about the impact on this 85-year-old body. It was really painful to watch from a step removed. And yet, I think they were just in the weeds, you know, trying to do the best they could. Nobody purposely made bad choices, but the cumulativeness of it was really a difficult situation for everyone involved. And so I think that's the kind of thing you're talking about. How do we avoid that? And I love your um, My Goals of Care Jumpstarter. This is a free download off Matt's website. And Matt's website is howtotrainyourdoctor.com. So you can easily find out more about his resources. Gosh, I there's so much more to say. What what's your what's your best advice for kind of tackling these large and small conversations? I mean, honestly, have have the conversations. They don't they don't have to be perfect. Um, and just recognize everyone everyone's trying their best here on both sides. And you know, people will will make mistakes, but just to jump in and, and start somewhere and start by having a conversation with yourself about you know what what does quality of life mean to you? What does living mean to you? And, you know, think to yourself, you know, what, how is my quality of life impacted by my health right now? And if it's like not at all, then great. Like maybe come back to this when it is. Um, and if it is impacted right now, you know, start to think about you know, how that influences your decision-making and just share that with your doc. Just say, Hey, just doc, I want you to know, like these things are very important to me. If ever like these call into question, I want to reassess what we're doing here. Um, and bring and bring your people into these conversations too, not just your doc, but especially whoever your backup decision maker would be. Like, a, make sure you have a healthcare power attorney so they have a, a legally appointed backup decision maker. And B, don't wait for a crisis to bring them into the loop. Like, bring them in now. Like, if if they can come to your appointments, like, awesome. Like, bring them in. Make sure they know what's going on. Not only so they know what's going on with your health, but also so they know like how you're thinking about things. Because the ideal backup decision maker will step into your shoes and make decisions as if they were you. But if you haven't told them how you, how you think about things, that's going to be really hard to do. Uh, so bring them into the loop. Um, make sure everyone else in your family like knows who who's in charge if you're not. So they're not hassling them too much because, boy, does that happen uh, sometimes. Um, and uh, those, are really, those are really the big things. Just like start yeah, the those, conversation somewhere. Those are big. Those are huge. I mean, I think take that to heart if you're listening and you don't have a healthcare proxy named legally, please go do that this week. Like that's yes. so, so important. And that's for any of us who who can't speak for ourselves for whatever reason, a car accident, a sudden seizure that throws us into unconsciousness. Like we need, you need to know who that legal person is. And I love what you just said, Matt, that it's so important that everybody in the family system or the friend system, whatever it is that they know, so that that person is supported, not hassled. Because I think yeah. that is happens more than we um, care to think. And yeah. you you want that healthcare proxy person to feel like they're empowered and supported because they're making really difficult decisions. And you want them to know what your thinking is and have shared that all along. I would also add, if you're a healthcare person, 
and your beloved person who's starting to be ill or deep into some illness or fragility starts to bring this up, please don't shut them down with like, oh, no, yeah. no, dad, we don't need to talk about that. Oh, grandma, that's not a problem. You're doing so well. I'm sure you'll live to be 90. Please let them talk and listen because what they're trying to tell you is really important. And these are vulnerable conversations. And I think our society, want, we just we're kind of taught to brush them off and they're uncomfortable. And so don't go there, but they're critical yeah, yeah. and they will come back to be so helpful. You'll be so glad you had that conversation when the crisis comes, right? Yeah, it is. It is such a gift to know what to do in a crisis. That's it's not common. You know, folks get thrown into these situations with no preparation. And it's terrifying because everyone just wants to do right by their loved one. Uh, and conversely, the folks that are sick just want to know their family is going to be okay when, when they're gone. And having these conversations, preparing people to enter a crisis with some general sense of direction is, is such, such an amazing gift. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you're, you're giving your family members and loved ones kind of peace of mind when they're having to make these hard choices. Did mom want a feeding tube? We don't know. We never talked about it. We have no idea. Gosh, I guess we should probably do that, even though the chances of it being helpful are so slim. And yeah. I always think it's important to remember, too, that these aggressive interventions, when someone is nearing the end of life, you know, they they often, I love Chaplain Hank Dunn said this on a podcast with me. He said, you know, people think they're making life and death decisions for family members. It's often death and death decisions. So yeah. what kind of death are you hoping for? Because they, they are coming towards that very quickly. And what is, what are the goals of care for that moment? Yeah. I, I, I talk about this to, to fellow docs all the time, be careful not to set up false choices for families to make it clear that you know, these, once we get into these very difficult situations where we can't fix the underlying illness, we do sort of, we feel obligated to offer these things because docs often connect hope with interventions. They don't, they don't know another way to offer hope or to align with families other than to offer some sort of procedure, surgery, medication, even if they really don't think it'll help. Uh, and when you're on the other side of that and you're desperate and scared and you don't want to lose your loved one, like you'll, like you're in survival mode, you'll say yes to anything. Um, and unless you've prepared for that ahead of time, or unless you're, if you're very, very savvy and can tell the doc, like, be straight with me, like, do you think this will actually help? Do you think, like, what, what will this achieve? Uh, and if you've got a doc that's confident enough to say, I mean, nothing, uh, which is also, you know, not, not 100% of the time where you get such honesty. Um, yeah. And I always hope that at those junctures, like what either what family members will ask or what a doctor will offer is it might be time to consider hospice. Like yeah. as a family member, you can say, gee, is it time to consider hospice? Would that be the most comfortable way to continue to receive medical care, but more about comfort and more about relaxing and more about comfort and longevity whatever that longevity in quotes means, but yeah. that can be really different than the aggressive places that we tend to go. Yeah. Which, which ironically in cases like with the feeding tube or, or chemo at the very end of life, and often those things will shorten life um, as opposed to picking the more conservative, you know, careful hand feeding or transition to hospice rather than chemo. Often that will be the pathway that gives you more time and, and better time at that. Right. More quality. Well, yeah. Matt, I thank you so much. We, we've got to stop, but uh, <laughs> you can find out more about Matt's work at howtotrainyourdoctor.com. You can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. And I think 
you know, you and I have the same goal, which is conversation. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me on here. This was a really, really fun conversation and happy to come back anytime. I, I feel like we could go a lot of different directions. So we'll have to think about that. When um, when you publish a book, I think we should talk again. I feel like there's, <laughs> I feel like there's a book in this. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the vote of confidence. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.